Hi, I'm Dr. Judy, and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment, and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. Today, we're going to talk about the art and science of happiness. Let me start with a question. Are you happy? It's a simple question, but one with surprising depth. What does happiness even mean? Is it the fleeting pleasure you get from a slice of chocolate cake? Is it the satisfaction of a job well done? Or is it simply a joy for life? I feel like this discussion is always timely, but especially now as we have been facing unprecedented challenges globally. I've been having a lot of discussions with my patients, family, and friends about happiness. What does it really mean? And are they getting enough of it? More than ever, the resounding story I'm hearing is that people feel that their routes to happiness have been increasingly stripped from them. The limitations of the pandemic and the barrage of negative information online makes it harder to achieve this coveted state. I totally get it. I'm a total extrovert and a super active person by nature. I love being out and about, and some of my happiness-inducing activities include enjoying a meal with friends, going to the theater for shows or heading to sporting events, checking out museums and art installations, and doing various activities outdoors from hiking, biking, snowboarding, to the flying trapeze. And a lot of those things come with restrictions now, and it makes it harder to partake in them with the regularity that I did for years of my life. And I'm hearing similar stories from my loved ones and colleagues. They're feeling those same strains on their happiness quotient, and this can cause distress, anger, sadness, and even hopelessness. If this resonates with you, listen on, because we're going to delve deeply into the art and science of happiness today. I'm going to answer your biggest questions about how to get more of this feeling and reveal the five habits of happy people. I'm willing to bet that you'll leave this podcast episode feeling a surge in happiness right away with what you'll learn. So how do you define happiness? I know that most people probably don't feel they need a definition of happiness. Truthfully, you probably feel it or don't feel it at any given time. But oftentimes, we're overly focused on a very narrow definition of happiness, that of the abundance of positive emotions and at the same time, the absence of negative emotions. And who can blame us? Who wants to feel negative emotions? They're unpleasant, and so, of course, we learn to push them away. Mass media even encourages us to do this most of the time. Think of all those feel-good ads that you see. I particularly recall those antidepressant medication commercials where the person starts taking their prescribed medications and all of a sudden, they're skipping across the lawn and dancing under the stars with a romantic partner. But is that really how it works in real life? Are we setting up an overly rosy picture that most people can't live up to? In recent years, there has been an explosion of scientific research revealing precisely how positive feelings like happiness are good for us. They motivate us, help us to overcome challenges, buffer us from some effects of stress, connect us with others, and promote healthier mind and body outcomes. A quick Google search of happiness yields thousands of articles that vibe on this theme. Clearly, people want to know more about it and how they can get as much of it as possible. But did you know that there are some potential pitfalls of happiness? 
Yes, you heard that right. And we're going to start by talking about happiness facts and myths and how understanding this is one of the keys to achieving a more balanced and healthy life. So let's play a game. I'm going to read you some statements and we're going to play a round of fact or myth. Answer yes, if you believe this is a happiness fact and no, if you believe this is a happiness myth. Fact or myth, happiness can increase creativity and feelings of safety. Believe it or not, this is a myth. Happiness has a cost when experienced too intensely. Yes, at moderate levels of happiness, it can open our minds to foster more creative thinking and help us tackle problems or puzzles. But research by Mark Allen Davis shows that when people experience overwhelming amounts of happiness, they lose the ability to tap into and channel their creativity. Fact or myth? The pursuit of happiness might cause us to be unhappy. This is a fact. Here's the weird paradox. The more one strives for happiness, the less likely it seems that people can hold on to it for very long. Researcher Iris Mouse shows that the more people strive for happiness, the more likely they are to set a high standard for happiness and then be disappointed when that standard is not met all the time. Fact or myth? Overly desiring happiness might lead us to risky behaviors. This is also a fact. People who are in a type of happiness overdrive might actually engage in riskier behaviors and disregard threats. This is because an overfocus on positive emotions at the expense of other feelings might lead you to attend only to the positive things around you and overlook warning signs in the environment. There is a mechanism that we all have called the risk-reward assessment, and it is important in how we make decisions. If we overly desire happiness too much, this mechanism gets thrown off, and we might disregard things that can hurt us because we've got tunnel vision and want to experience happiness at almost any cost. This may lead one down the path of overly indulging in alcohol, experimenting with drugs, binge eating, and the like. And finally... Fact or myth, happiness means experiencing positive feelings and none of the negative ones. This is a myth. And this is what I was referring to earlier, that we as a society have come to take on a much narrower view of happiness that actually does greater damage than good. So let's get back to that question. How do we define happiness? The Greater Good Center at my alma mater, UC Berkeley, has been a leading source of scientific information about happiness, and they embrace the happiness definition set by positive psychology research Sonia Lubomirsky that defines it as the experience of joy, contentment, or positive well-being combined with a sense that one's life is good, meaningful, and worthwhile. What do you think of that definition of happiness? Personally, I love it and think it's a great definition to aspire to. It captures the fleeting positive emotions that come with happiness, along with a deeper sense of meaning and purpose in life, and suggests how these emotions and sense of meaning reinforce one another. And here's the rub, guys. If you embrace a holistic view of happiness that takes into account the full picture, you'll be able to reap the benefits associated with happiness and much less of some of those downfalls we just discussed. One more important thing I want to share with you before we get to your questions. I'm going to introduce you to a concept that may be new to you, but I believe is really important to understand. To put it simply, happiness can be broken down into two major types, hedonic happiness 
and eudaimonic happiness. Let's start with hedonic happiness. This idea of happiness dates back to the 4th century BC when a Greek philosopher taught that the ultimate goal in life should be to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. In our current social landscape, hedonic happiness is often championed as the ultimate goal. Popular culture tends to portray an outgoing, social, joyous view of life. And as a result, no wonder why hedonism in its various forms is touted as the best way to achieve happiness. Eudaimonic happiness is different. It gets less attention, but has experienced a surge recently in the psychological research of happiness and well-being. Like Hedonia, the concept of eudaimonia dates back to the 4th century BC also, when Aristotle first proposed it in his work. According to Aristotle, to achieve happiness, one should live a life well-lived and live their life in accordance with their virtues. He claimed people are constantly striving to meet their potential and be their best selves, and that leads to greater purpose and meaning. Both kinds of happiness are necessary to maximize well-being. A study by Luke Henderson and his colleagues showed that hedonic behaviors increased positive emotions and life satisfaction and helped regulate feelings, while eudaimonic behavior led to great meaning in life and more experiences of elevation, or the feeling that one experiences when witnessing moral virtue. Hedonic happiness is achieved through experiences of pleasure and enjoyment, while eudaimonic happiness is achieved through experiences of meaning and purpose. And when you're tackling something with purpose and conviction, it is near impossible for all of your emotions to be positive in nature. Think of all the big goals and important milestones in your life, whether it involves relocating across country for new opportunities, having and raising children, getting a higher education degree, or digging deep in psychotherapy for self-development. None of these worthwhile undertakings lack negative sensations somewhere along the way. From self-doubt to anger to sadness or confusion, you've probably experienced a gamut of emotions in the process. But if I ask you now if that was all worth it, you probably would answer with a resounding yes. And similarly, along the way of these goal pursuits, you've no doubt experienced real emotional highs as well, celebrated small and big victories, and experienced surges to your self-confidence. Even as you recollect them now, it brings up positive feelings. In these examples, you can see how both hedonic and eudaimonic happiness pervade your most important life experiences. This concept is made so clear by the movie Inside Out. I don't want to spoil it for those of you who haven't seen it yet, but this is an amazing educational and entertaining movie for children and adults to learn about the complexity of emotions and to embrace it all. In the movie, the main character experiences a beautiful moment with her parents where she feels sad, grateful, happy, and relief all at the same time. And that's really how the most cherished experiences in our lives are experienced, all at once with the blurrings of boundaries among them. There's a lot we can do to control our own levels of happiness. Psychologist Sonia Lubomirsky outlined in her research that each person has a happiness set point. While about half of that set point is determined by genetics, another 10% is the result of environmental circumstances outside of one's control. But the great news is that 40% of happiness is under your direct control each and every day. 
So as you can see, there is a lot you can do to promote happiness for yourself and to reap the benefits no matter what is happening. And here's the real secret, everyone. Happiness is based on habits you cultivate, and we can all learn the habits of highly happy people and adopt them to increase our own feelings of well-being. I'm going to reveal all of that to you at the end of this episode, but right now, let's get to some of our listener questions about happiness, and I'll give you some guidance and tips on how to experience more happiness every day. Let's visit now with my fab team, producer Stephanie and sound engineer, Jonathan. Hey guys, are you guys feeling happy today? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I watched because of this show. I watched Inside Out again last night with my (laughs) eight-year-old. Oh, isn't it so good? It's so good. It's so good. Jonathan, how are you doing? I'm feeling good. (laughs) You know, current state of the world, you always have to sort of like give and take, I think. Today, yes. I'm feeling really good. And I do love Inside Out, Stephanie. So I should watch that myself now. <laughs> yes. We got to put that back on our rotation of just those feel good things that we can watch at the end of a tough day. I love a hot bath and a candle. Ooh, that sounds that's, great. That's what I do to oh. make myself get happy. <laughs> I love it. See, that's tip number one already. We're getting into these practical tips. So what's our first question from our listeners, Stephanie? Yeah. So the first question is from Becky um, from Instagram. And she said, my parents poo-pooed negative feelings when I was a kid. They shut it down whenever I said I felt sad, telling me instead to not think about it or to stop being sad. I think I've internalized this and I noticed myself saying the same to my kids. What should I do? I don't want my kids to get this message that they can't feel their feelings. What a good question. And I feel like that's so relatable. And I think that sometimes people tell you that it's not just parents. It could be your friends. It could be your colleagues. But they say that because of two things. One, they really do want you to feel better. So they're trying to help. But two, I think it's more about their own uncomfortability with negative emotions. And as we've already talked about, that's a common phenomenon. Our society really promotes this whole idea of let's just all be happy and forget about it. But when somebody hears that and they're having a negative emotional state, they feel invalidated. And then they also judge themselves like, oh, right. Why am I not happy? Maybe I should be. So I think this is a great question from Becky. And I think in terms of something that could be helpful for her as well as for her kids, it's really about just sitting with it without needing to fix it. I feel like sometimes we talk about how when a problem comes up, people want to quickly cover it up, bandage it up. But sometimes it's also okay just to recognize that it's there, accept that it is what it is in the moment, and also recognize that feelings are transient. They are like waves in the ocean and The more you fight with them, the longer they actually linger. (laughs) But if you kind of just let it be and know that they're going to pass, they actually do tend to dissipate faster. And as a parent, I think when you hear from your children that they're not feeling well, instead of dismissing it or running right to a gratitude exercise, instead of just letting them process it, I think it's just important for them to sit with that. And as a parent, tell your children, I'm hearing that you're telling me that you feel fill in the blank with the emotion. Tell me more about that. What's going on? It's really important that we don't even apologize. Like, I'm sorry you're feeling that way. Because again, that puts a value judgment on the feeling. So instead, just say, I hear that you're feeling sad. What's going on? And just listen to what they say. And really, the incredible value of just sitting and listening and maybe not offering a solution, but just saying, I understand, I hear you. And then finishing up with what can I do to help? 
because sometimes your kids will have really good ideas. Like, well, I think I just need to take a quick nap right now, or maybe we can go and make my favorite snack. And then that way you engage them in the problem solving as well. And I think that that's some advice that Becky maybe can try on herself the next time that she's not feeling so well. All right. The next question is from Parker from Twitter. He asks, my wife and I get into this debate a lot. She comes from a family that hardly ever argued, and I think she believes that's a worthwhile goal for our relationship. This leads to a lot of resentment and things I believe need to be discussed and don't get talked about. What's the research on happiness in relationships? Is the absence of conflict really where it's at? Absolutely not, Parker, but I totally understand why we would think that way. And I've certainly had patients, friends, even family members who brag about the fact that they don't fight with their significant others. And actually, to me, that could potentially be a red flag. Not always, but sometimes. And here's why. Two different people coming together and trying to make a life together. There's just no way that you're not going to argue. And if you are with somebody for years and years and you've never argued, that to me shows that maybe there's a bit of a disengagement in the relationship, that maybe there's things that you're not talking about, that you're not fully being honest with one another. And that does lead to resentment down the road. And also it causes the couples to possibly withdraw from each other more And one day they wake up and they don't even realize who they're in the relationship with anymore. And so we definitely don't want that to happen. I think that that information gets put out there because again, we're always trying to run from negative feelings. And obviously it doesn't feel good to have to argue sometimes, but if you can argue without putting the person down, calling them names or being otherwise emotionally abusive, arguments can actually be really healthy. You air out your conflicts and then you try to problem solve them together. And so I think Parker and his wife, one thing that they should be thinking about is how can you have a constructive conversation that doesn't go off the rails, but everybody gets to say their piece. And my best advice for how to get this process started is just to start having and creating these moments where people can just bring them up and it's routine. So sometimes we call them family meetings, um, but every couple of weeks you can set aside 30 minutes. You guys can each get a cup of tea and you guys can talk about whatever comes up, whether it's scheduling for what you'd like to do over the next week or two, or, Hey, I just wanted to talk about this chore that's not getting done and how we might be able to solve the problem together. I think it's really important just to have that time set aside so that there's a place and a forum where you can air out your conflicts and concerns. But at the same time, the research shows that it's not really about the number of conflicts people get into. It's about the positive and quality moments that people share. And so aside from creating space to talk about potential conflicts, it's also important to create space for positive events and interactions. My husband and I love having coffee with each other on the weekends. It's sort of a ritual that we do together. And it's really lovely. We kind of just sit, sometimes we're reading, sometimes we're talking, but it's just a time and a space that we've created for ourselves to have that quality time. So I think Parker please chat with your wife and make sure you create a positive and quality moment space, but also a space and a routine for discussing problems that need to be solved. Great. Okay. So this next question is from Carmen from Instagram. She says, I hear what you're saying that happiness isn't all about positive emotions and no negative ones, but it sounds impossible to want to embrace the negative ones and accept them. Any tips on how to actually do that? I don't know if I'm really convinced that's actually something to aspire to. 
Uh, Carmen, she's such a realist and I totally get it. Nobody wants to experience negative emotions all the time, but if we try to run away from them, they actually come up so much more and come back oftentimes much stronger than when it first started. And so it's not so much about liking the negative emotions. That would be crazy. Who likes negative emotions, but it's more about just accepting them when they come up. And that is of course easier said than done, but one of my go-to techniques is to really just slow down and acknowledge the negative emotion that you're experiencing, give it a name. So whether it's sadness, anger, boredom, call it out. And then I love to do this mindfulness exercise where you try to physicalize this emotion. So when something's inside our brains and our bodies, it feels so murky, like they're going to go on forever. But if you can physicalize that feeling, imagine, for example, that sadness is a physical object in your world and then describe what it looks like. Describe it with your five senses. Okay. It looks like a bowling ball and it's the color black and it's pretty heavy and it's rough around the edges and I'm holding it in my hands. And this is what sadness looks like to me. This accomplishes two things. One, when you physicalize something, what's helpful about it is that you're making it concrete and you're making it separate of yourself. It's something that's outside of your body, outside of your mind. It is not you. It is just a feeling that you're having. But secondly, physical objects have boundaries. Even the Grand Canyon has a beginning and an end. Even the planet Earth has a beginning and an end. So when something can be physicalized, you can really see that it's concrete and that there is a beginning and an end to it rather than this amorphous thing that can go on and on inside of you. So the next time you're feeling a negative feeling, try this technique out. Only takes a couple of minutes and let me know how that works for you. All right. The next question is from Instagram. Uh, Ling asks, I'm a supervisor at work leading a team of 10, and I often wonder how best to keep my team motivated and happy because I know that's associated with productivity. Any advice to motivate them to be more productive and feel appreciated? For sure. And Ling, this is such a great question because, of course, happiness and joy are associated with higher productivity, and that research is really strong. You want to do it from a genuine place, and I think the genuine place that you come from is really caring about the values of your team members. What do they find important? What do they aspire to? What are the things that keep them going? And there's a couple of other episodes that we recorded in the past that you guys should check out because there's some helpful tips in both of these episodes. We did an episode about the animal types and how people can be motivated by different things depending on your personality. So definitely check that out because that's one way to understand your team members better, understanding whether they're a panther or a peacock or a dolphin or an owl. It really has something to do with the types of ways they prefer to work and how they feel appreciated. But another way in which you can really appreciate your team members is my episode on the five love languages. We talk about how important it is to understand how people express their gratitude for other people and also how they like to receive that gratitude. So understanding some of these things, really getting to know your team members because everybody is different that will go a long way. And even making that process really transparent, 
asking your team members, I'm trying to get to know you better. I'm trying to find out what motivates you. Can you tell me if this is something that you like and if this is something that can help you to be your best self at work, even when you're stressed out? Or how can I help you when you're stressed out? When you do that and have these continuing dialogues with your team members, they will feel grateful and appreciated and they'll want to go above and beyond for you. What's our next question, Stephanie? This next question is from Manny from Twitter. Manny says, I was diagnosed with depression as a child and I still struggle with it from time to time now. I do have a psychiatrist and I am taking meds and I also see a counselor on and off, but the depression keeps coming back. Am I doomed to always be depressed? And are people who are depressed destined to a less happy life? What a great question from Manny. And I think that this speaks to a lot of people because once you've experienced a depressive episode, it can sometimes be really difficult to know whether or not this is just going to be an ongoing issue you'll be dealing with for the rest of your life. And certainly once you have experienced a depressive episode, there is a higher risk that you might experience another one later down in life. And even when you're doing a really great job of going to therapy and keeping up with your medications, that can still happen. I think the most important lesson here though, Manny, and for anybody else who this resonates with, is that it's okay if you have those feelings again and the depression comes up, as long as you feel more confident that you can deal with it. I think depression can cause hopelessness and people might feel like a positive future is not possible. But once you learn the tools and you learn what works for you when you're depressed and you learn about the warning signs and when they happen to get connected with your providers right away or to tell your family and other trusted individuals, it becomes a lot easier to manage. And then you won't feel as scared or as stressed out the next time you notice that you might be having depressive symptoms. I think that the really profound part of this question is, are you doomed to always be depressed? And are people who are depressed destined to a less happy life? And the answer is no. People who are depressed can also feel really happy and joyful emotions too. And a key to this is trying to stay as much as possible in the present moment when you're feeling depressed and when you're having a bad day and refocusing on what's important to you and doing it anyway. Oftentimes when people are depressed or when they're anxious, they'll say, well, then I'll put off this thing until I feel better, whether it's something to propel their career or to connect with a loved one, or to even go back out into the dating world, they'll say, you know what, when I feel better, that's when I'll do all those other things that are important to me. But of course, the paradox of that is then it makes it harder for you to feel better because you're not doing those things that are meaningful and have value to you. So one of my favorite books is the um, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy-based book by Russ Harris, and it's called The Happiness Trap. And in it, he talks all the time about how when we're depressed, we should still do the things that we find value in anyway. And of course, a side effect of that is you actually become happier because you're doing those meaningful, valuable things and it boosts your mood and creates more opportunities for positive emotions. What's our next question, Jonathan? The next question is from Annie on Twitter. And she says, are there ways to achieve hedonic happiness that aren't too self-indulgent or even destructive? My usual thing is to eat rich and sweet foods. Same, Annie. But afterwards, I tend to feel horrible. <laughs> Annie, that's so relatable. And as we discussed, hedonic happiness is not all bad. We kind of need both. We need the hedonic happiness and the eudaimonic happiness. And that's where you get your complete holistic sense of happy. So there are totally 
avenues into hedonic happiness that isn't totally self-indulgent or destructive. Actually, Jonathan just mentioned a couple of these. He says he likes lighting a candle and taking a bath. Those are routes to hedonic happiness, snuggling up with a nice blanket, dancing to your favorite songs, re-watching some of your favorite TV shows. I got to tell you, sometimes when I'm really stressed, I don't really want to start a new show because that takes more energy. <laughs> so I just like to re-watch things like How I Met Your Mother episodes and Friends and Parks and Recreation. And it's like, I know what's going to happen in the episode. I've watched it three times, but somehow that's soothing. And so those are actually some ways to achieve hedonic happiness as well. And don't give up on the rich and sweet foods. I mean, you're allowed to have them. And I don't think that this whole black and white idea of, oh no, I shouldn't eat sweets at all is necessarily good. It's really just about eating it in moderation. So if you're going to eat it anyway, Annie, try to eat it mindfully. Don't be eating it in front of the TV while you're talking to somebody and thinking about other stuff, really make a ritual out of it because that can give you even more hedonic happiness. Like put out a nice little placemat, use your fancy dishes, make a little coffee or tea to go along with it and just really take it in and enjoy. And if you're eating mindfully, the bonus is you're going to feel when you're full, like you've had enough. And that way you don't overeat it. You eat it until you're satisfied and then you can put it away and look forward to the next time you get to do that again. I think this next question is very relatable for a lot of people right now. It's from Tinny from Facebook, which is kind of a cool name, Tinny. She said, I feel more isolated than ever due to the pandemic. I live alone and I'm in a higher risk group for COVID-19. So I've been very conservative in terms of being out and about. I noticed that I've been feeling more down and hopeless too. What can I do? Wow, Tinny, that is a tough question. And like you said, Stephanie, super relatable. And as we know, COVID is so personal for everybody and everybody's protocol is different, especially when you're in a high risk group, you're going to take more measures to protect yourself. But even though you might be more physically safe, you are going to have some of those feelings of loneliness and sadness and just feeling isolated from the people that you love. So one of the things that is really important and that the happiness research shows is that social connection is one of the major keys. So you can't give up on that, even though things are a little tougher now. And I think it's really important to try to find new ways to connect, being creative about that connection. Not everything has to be a Zoom happy hour, but it might be helpful to take a class together with some loved ones. Recently, I got really uh, deep into flower therapy, and I've taken a number of classes where we learn about flower arrangement. And myself and my friends and my family will all sign on at the same time. And what's really wonderful about that type of creative social interaction is that there's both a process and a product that you can enjoy. So you kind of get to enjoy the process of creating the arrangement. And then you get to see the beautiful arrangement in your house and appreciate it for days to come. So Tinny, I would say that it's important to challenge yourself to think a little bit more about new and creative ways for connection and definitely make sure that you make it a goal to do something to connect every single day, even if it's small, even if it's just picking up the phone and calling one friend, just put that goal out there for yourself because we do need that daily social connection. And then the second piece is other ways to increase happiness are to do little activities from what we call a pleasant activity list. This is a tool from Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. If you Google pleasant activity list, there'll be so much free information out there, PDFs of hundreds of ideas of things that you can do when you're feeling down and feeling hopeless. And some of them take 
10 seconds to do, one minute to do, three minutes to do. So it's definitely doable. And putting that on your to-do list every day too, just making sure that you make connection with at least one pleasant activity a day and one social connection a day. All right, Dr. Judy, the last question is from Xander on Instagram. Xander says, I'm a therapist in training and I wonder sometimes if I need to be a role model to my clients for happiness. There are days I don't even feel like going to work and it can be tough. How much of this should I be sharing with clients and how can I help them when I am feeling down myself? Great question. I think this applies not only to budding therapists, but just people who like to be helpful, people who are in leadership positions, or people that generally maybe your family members and your friends look up to, and you kind of feel like I have to keep this going all the time. Well, no, I think the best role model is somebody who can say, hey, I'm just like you. I feel the same way that you do sometimes. And here's what I've done to try to get out of it. And sometimes I've been successful, sometimes not so much. Uh, I really understand that as a helping professional, there's so many of us right now who are in the helping professions. Um, it can be tough because we're kind of going through a world crisis right now. So everyone's going through at the same time. We're all being traumatized by it together. And yet you're in a role where you have to help people to feel better. But it's okay that you might need a mental health day for yourself, that you might need somebody to cover for you at work so that you can take a break for yourself. And it's also okay to disclose some of that to the people that you're helping, as long as you're keeping the focus on them and the process of helping them rather than making it about yourself, right? So I think it's always helpful to tell your patients, hey, you know, I've been through it. I felt that way. And here's a few techniques that I've tried and here's how they've worked for me. I think that not only does that give you more street cred to your patients, but they also understand that you're not just talking from an ivory tower. You're somebody who's tried these techniques yourself. You struggle with those same things and that there is hope on the horizon because even if you don't feel great every day, Xander, there's probably some wins that you've experienced from applying these techniques to yourself. And those are things that you can celebrate and share with your clients. And I think finally, it's really important for people in the helping professions to actually seek their own professional mental health care if they need it. I think that sometimes there's a stigma that holds people back who are in medical and psychological professions that, oh, well, I'm supposed to be in the helping position, so maybe I shouldn't also be doing my own work. But absolutely, you owe it to yourself and your clients to do your own work. And there's no shame if you need a little more professional support right now. There's so many easy ways to do it now. There's online therapy websites and so many easy ways to connect with good quality professional care. So Xander, if you feel like you need that right now, just to get ahead a little bit, go ahead and do that. You deserve it and it will benefit you and your work. Wow, guys, such great questions. And again, such an important topic because we all want to feel happy. Who doesn't want to feel happy? And that brings me to today's supercharged tips. The habits of happy people. As I mentioned earlier, happiness is a skill. It's something that can be cultivated and they're cultivated through regular habits. So come with me because we're going to talk about the five habits of happy people. First tip and first habit is get in touch with your values daily. This is so important. As I mentioned, there are two parts to holistic happiness, the hedonic happiness 
and the eudaimonic happiness. Now, we all know how to get to the hedonic happiness. That is the definition that everybody ascribes to. So we need to put a little bit more focus on the eudaimonic part of happiness, which is all about doing things that bring you meaning and are valuable to you. So really understand what your values are. I have a values card sort that you can check out on my website, drjudyho.com. You can download it and it's a values card sort that you can actually physically do almost like a game to figure out what your top values are. But there's a lot of other values cards out there too. So if you just Google values cards or values card sort, there's a lot of different versions of it floating out there. And it'll be really helpful for you to really understand the things that are the most important to you and then make a commitment to touch base with your top three values once a day. So for example, if one of your top values is community, make a little tiny goal every day to honor that value, whether it's picking up the phone to call a friend or writing an email to somebody to express your appreciation of your friendship with them. All of those things are examples of how you could make contact with that value daily if it's important to you. The second habit of happy people is that they practice creative gratitude. So I know we've talked about gratitude a lot. You probably feel like it's being rammed down your throat, but guess what? It works. That's why we keep talking about it. But if you feel like sometimes gratitude gets boring or if you feel like it's being forced down your throat, then think about creative ways to spin that gratitude. It doesn't always have to be journaling about all the things that you like, um, all the things that you appreciate in life. It could be maybe doing something nice for somebody, really paying attention to what other people enjoy and honoring that by doing something that you know they really like, not necessarily what you like. It could just be you expressing out loud how much you're thankful for someone else. So again, instead of writing it down in your journal, just tell somebody how you feel, tell them what they mean to you in your life. It doesn't have to be serious, but it does have to be a habit. It has to be something that you pretty much put into your schedule on a regular basis so that when things get difficult, that feeling of gratitude is already naturally embedded in your daily routine rather than something that you have to put aside make time for. It's just part of who you are and how you live your life. So think about creative little ways to practice gratitude daily. The third habit of happy people is that they find refreshing ways to be in the moment. We talk about mindfulness all the time, but mindfulness doesn't mean that you're cross-legged in meditation mode. Mindfulness just means that you're paying attention to one thing at a time. You can be doing something for a work mindfully. You can be having your coffee or your tea or a slice of cake mindfully. You could be watching TV mindfully. How many of us have been doing that? I feel like everybody watches TV and has their phone on at the same time looking at stuff on social media. So just do one thing at a time. Did you know that when you are more singularly minded and do one thing at a time, that that actually boosts your feelings of happiness and well-being right there in the moment? That's all that it takes. Recently, I took on a new hobby of calligraphy. So I bought a calligraphy workbook, and that's been one of my refreshing ways to be in the moment. So keep challenging yourself to find new ways to explore how to be mindful, and mindfulness can absolutely be active 
as well as something that you're just more receiving, like sitting out in nature and just looking around. There's just so many different ways to practice this particular habit. So I invite you to think about new and refreshing ways to do so. The fourth habit of happy people is to take an other's orientation, be kind and get social. I know that when you're feeling down, probably the last thing on your mind is how other people are doing. But amazingly, when you're not feeling good, one of the best ways to feel good again is to take care of somebody else, help somebody else. And that's because you get to see the enjoyment that somebody else receives from your help, but also you feel good about yourself that you've done something positive for someone else. And so because of those two processes, helping others and being kind is one of the easiest ways to feel good. Nowadays, people are finding all different ways to connect and to help and support one another. This can be just as simple as picking up the phone, calling somebody you care about, not making it about yourself and just asking them how their day is and asking them how they're doing. That's it. It can be so simple. And again, such an important habit. And the last habit of happy people is to practice huga. Have you guys heard of huga? It's spelled H-Y-G-G-E, and it's a Danish word. And there's a lot of research that shows this idea of huga is really happiness-inducing. Huga has been described as coziness of the soul. And did you know that Danes are considered the happiest people on the planet despite their long, hard winters? So obviously, they are tapping into a secret that is keeping them feeling good. And Huga is a way of life for them. So what is Huga? Well, Huga has a few key ingredients, and they include concepts like togetherness, presence, indulgence, relaxation, and comfort. In many ways, huga is like a hug, just without the actual physical touch. And what it really comes down to is making the most of little daily pleasures. So huga is all about creating a cozy atmosphere, doing self-care, perhaps learning a craft, enjoying little pleasures like sweet treats, and bringing people you love into this concept. So even if you don't live with some of the people that you really care about, you can all do a huga session together over Zoom. How's that for a new idea of social connection? So there's a lot of research out there and a lot of readings about huga. If you think this sounds like a fun and intriguing topic, look into it more and practice it daily. Thanks for listening to this episode of Supercharged Life. If you like the show and want to learn more, follow me at Dr. Judy Ho. Remember to subscribe, download, and tell your friends, and take a moment to leave a review. It'll mean so much to me. I read all of your reviews, and today I want to shout out a listener. Her name is Song One, and she says, perfect mix of entertaining and educational content. As a student of life, I highly recommend this podcast for anyone interested in learning more about the personal and professional development aspects of life. Thank you so much for that lovely review. And if you leave me a review, I will look forward to shouting you out on a future episode. I'm Dr. Judy. And remember, any time is a great time to supercharge your life. This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical, psychological, or professional advice, do not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. 
The views expressed by the host and guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. For medical, psychological, or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician, a psychologist, or other trained professional. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.